or good morning, depending on your perspective. It's me, Dale. Shiver, your host through the deep night. Our broadcasting equipment is operating at full megawatt capacity to provide you with an hour of provocative and entertaining conversation. It's 4 a.m., the hour of regrets and revelations, and you're listening to another episode of Dale Radio, coming to you, as always, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And the Gowanus is surging with the humidity and the recent heavy rains. The entire city of New York is awash in the indelicate odor of human output. And this is the time of year that we seek refuge indoors, wandering into hotel lobbies and chain store clothing marts in an attempt to cool down with the A.C. if only for a moment. Why, it seems only weeks ago that we were complaining that it was too cold. Where's summer, we said. Well, here it is. It lives in the damp spaces of my being. Now, it may be hot here in the cauldron of old Brooklyn, but this week I traveled to New Orleans, where hot takes on new dimensions. Now, I've been to New Orleans many times. I've grown quite fond of it. It's a strange place, but I'm beginning to think all of America is strange, that there's something built into the nature of this country, either by geography or history in the relentless reinvention or in the improvisational spirit of building something new while longing to forget the past that contributes to an ancient weirdness, the ghost of those old lands reaching through time to ensure that nothing ever quite settles and there remains a disquiet throughout the streets. New Orleans is notorious for ghosts and spirits and hauntings of that sort, so maybe I'm just inclined to think that way after a short visit. But do you recall that in some children's stories, the ones that you preferred your parents never read again, there'd be a stagecoach that would sometimes arrive, and you'd say, what's a stagecoach? And they'd have to explain it, but the young couple would be in there, some young couple, perhaps they'd just been engaged, or they're on their way uh, to town, and they'd get in, and they'd soon realize that the driver had diverted from the predicted path, and as they rapped gently on the glass of the small window to object or poke their heads out the side door to lend proper instruction, they'd get the attention of the driver who would slowly turn around to reveal that his face was nothing but a skull, or worse, that there was no head at all. Oh, those were scary stories, mummy. Well, I witnessed something like a ghost carriage in the French Quarter on my recent trip. You know, there's tourist rides where one can take a haunted tour, that sort of thing. Well, as my work colleague and I were on our way to dinner, we heard terrible shouts, curses, and foul language echoing down the narrow streets of that section of the city. The voice grew louder and louder, struggling over the sounds of the horse's hooves as the wheels rattled over the cobblestones still wet from the afternoon downpour. The carriage was a large one, big enough to hold four couples, who no doubt wished they had gotten on the other cart, the one that left right before them with the good-looking driver in the top hat and the charming accent that made every sound seem as if it were dipped in batter, caressed with oil, and ever so gently drizzled with dark molasses. As would have been my luck were I in the same position. That cart pulled away right before this next gentleman rode up. Sometimes in line for taxis at the airport, you spot a nice clean car coming your way, and you think, oh, this will be wonderful. But instead, that one uh, is snagged by the person just up ahead of you who you didn't realize, and instead you have to uh, climb into a beat-up tercel, hand-painted yellow with the word taxi spelled with two Cs. And you think, this can't be legal. But then he asks where to, and you're tired from the flight, so you give him your home address. I'm just saying, sometimes... You get a bad hand in life, and sometimes you end up uh, spending the night and then uh, cooking eggs with an unlicensed cabbie. But these poor couples, no doubt they were there to enjoy a romantic getaway in the big easy. And now they're being held hostage by a moving wagon with a demon at the helm. His hair was stringy and frayed like the crypt keeper with a blowout. He wore a necklace around his neck fashioned from tiny shells, the kind you find in the dirt in New Orleans. I'm pretty sure he made it out of dirt. He'd paired jeans with a floral shirt that was once colorful but now faded as if it had been sitting in the front window of a goodwill for too long. He seemed angry at everything. 
His was a tour not of stately homes or historic sites, but of rage. You could hear that he pointed out places where he'd been done wrong by someone. I got into a fight right on that corner, he brayed. And his voice, oh, ladies and gentlemen, how to describe his voice. If you took Bobcat Goldwaith and ran his voice through a cheese grater, then pulverized it and blew it into the blades of an old metal fan, that would be the sound. Kind of everywhere and harsh and probably singed by too many cigarettes. Not a whisper so much as the sound you'd make if you puffed out your cheeks and focused all your air through a tiny slot and two dried-out reeds. But loud. An amplified sandstorm. Full of anger. It was a nightmare carriage, and the look on the passengers' faces, knowing that they could not jump up, jump off or up or anywhere to ask him to tone it down that look of being completely and absolutely trapped it's one i'll never forget probably if they were to god forbid meet an untimely end and i'm sure some of them considered it while on that journey that's what they'd look they'd have that look you know permanently etched into their faces where they'd come back and become part of the uh, a very popular ghost community of new orleans do you ever think about that what you'd wear as a ghost I have some fun faces that I use, of course, and probably I'd just keep to my suit, but maybe it'd be wise to pick out a fun element like a captain's hat or a little pin that has a rubber duck on it. You know, just something to have some fun with it and for them to remember you by. Uh, give the others a sense that you're in on the joke. <laughs> anyway, was it a crime that these folks were subjected to this demented carriage driver? Maybe. A little. A little crime. My guest today has produced a lot of projects about crime and specifically what contributes to people in our society being left with little choice but to operate outside of or in defiance of the law. I was so thrilled that it worked out to speak with my guest today, Alex Lambert, and I'm doubly excited to share our conversation with you. Alex does many things, all of them well. She's a visual artist, an award-winning filmmaker, a writer, a photographer, a director, and a playwright, among other things. And on and on, Alex Lambert's feature-length documentary, The Mark of Cain, was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award and aired on Nightline, that popular show. Uh, she went on to produce additional segments on Nightline and then segments for PBS Life's 360. Oh, do you remember that program? She's directed and produced uh, two other feature-length documentaries, Bayou Blue, Set in Louisiana, and mentor a film about bullying at a high school in Ohio. She was a writer on the television series Deadwood, which we talk about a little bit, and a writer-producer for the uh, HBO series John from Cincinnati. She's uh, directed numerous shorts and music videos, including a series for Mocha TV with Fred Armisen, Jack Black, and our friend Jibs Cameron. The book version of Mark Cain is out now uh, from Percival Press and available at percivalpress.com. Uh, let's go now to my conversation with Alex Lambert. Alex, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I wanted to have you on the show for a while, uh, and I'm glad we could make it happen. So uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. Now, uh, I know we were trying to figure out how we could have possibly missed each other uh, as we were like two great hawks just circling in the same sky, weren't we? A lot of, a lot of uh, points of contact. Circling around the carrion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Some old carcass out there. Now, you're dear friends with Jibs Cameron. Yeah, I, I adore Jibs. She, she worked. We worked together, and she's a genius. I think she is a performance artist. She's been on this, been on this show, and you know, I love that she's getting so much attention now. She deserves but, it. But, but I would argue, I've known her so long. Anything she ever did got attention. Not maybe the kind of attention that she's getting now, but certainly in San Francisco, where we were both active, she was. Uh, everything had a certain level of excitement when Jibs was going to be involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think also it's just exciting to see that you know, broadened out to a big audience because she, she's incredibly talented. Absolutely. And that was back in the day. Everybody was working at the Mission Creek Cafe. You ever go over there? I have been there, yes. Yes, with the logs for their logo. And you, yeah, people were doing stand-up at Brainwash and early Internet dates at the makeout room. Oh, San Francisco. <laughs> I get nostalgic for it, I do. Because it doesn't exist now the it same way. It doesn't. It's gone. You New York is gone. London's gone. San Francisco's gone. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's left? I don't know. <laughs> I hope, yeah, if anyone knows which city is left, let me know. That's right. Maybe Tulsa's on the rise. 
Tulsa could be on the rise. They've got some other issues going on in that whole middle part, but anyhow. I might stick to the margins of the country. <laughs> and do you lived in L.A. as well? I lived in L.A. for a few years when I was, uh, when I was working on Deadwood, but otherwise I've been in New York since I moved away from D.C. And that, that's where you grew up in D.C.? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a weird place to grow up, isn't it? It's an extremely strange place. Were your parents in the government or something? No. My father was a lawyer. My mother was a teacher. Um, my grandfather was in the government. What did he do there? He was involved with the New Deal and a lot of um, WPA and a lot of good that's good stuff. Yeah, the good stuff. <laughs> very, very good stuff. I'm very proud of, well, of being related to him. No, 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 no. Dreaming no. up uh, weapons or something. No, he was a good, good guy. Well, that's and you had a good upbringing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Aside from the weirdness of DC, yes, very good. Yeah. Very lucky. So. And what did family watch on TV? <laughs> what did we watch on TV? Um, there was a lot of Jeopardy yeah. playing. Yeah, knowledge was important. That was an important <laughs> show. I did very poorly at it, unfortunately. Now, still? I'm terrible at it. Cause really? I, even if I know the answer, I can't. Um, I'm too slow. Like, I would be the person who's, like, still trying to push the button and just losing, it's, you know, because I can't get the it's mechanics tricky. of it. Uh, it's a lot. It's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach or something. Very difficult. <laughs> but you managed to do a lot just fine with many other things, so that's okay. Well, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but uh, since you, you've, you've written a book on crime, and crime is a maybe thread through a lot of the things that you uh, have done, it is. Uh, where does the idea of crime lock in for you, for uh, young Alex? Um, I think, well, very young, there was things in my life you know, that are in the introduction to the book about... Uh, um, people I knew who were victims of crimes. But I think uh, more broadly, it's somewhat disappointing to people because my interest is really not in the in the more dramatic aspects of like the criminal act. It's, it's much more in the um, surrounding um, detritus and the like emotional through line of how it affects everybody. And yes. as it's like a lens to see how people behave just in a more extreme circumstance. Right. Well, I think that comes through in the work. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about it. But there's no James Elroy-like obsession for you? N- no. All the, no, I, no, there's no <laughs> obsession like that for me. I, I did invite him to be in that crime book and <laughs> spoke briefly, but yeah. but he declined. So He's a wild character, yeah, I yeah. tell you. I've had the opportunity to bring him a sandwich. <laughs> um, I, I can't say that I was ever really drawn to that a world, the the crime world myself. You know, there was a time, I think, in popular culture where maybe you had figures like uh, Charlie Manson kind of like hovering over things. Yes. Uh, I it, it didn't hold any appeal to me. That well, I think the reason I was saying that is because it didn't, it didn't for me really either. Like, I, I think often people are like, oh, you're going to love this, and they send me, <laughs> right. you know, some horrible thing that I don't want to see. <laughs> or, or they <laughs> ask the me problem, about some really it? super, you know, mainstream show that I've never watched. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think despite the the content of a lot of my work, it's not. Uh, if you found me outside of working, you know, I, I might be watching like animal videos. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of I think uh, uh, pre ideas about how what I'm going to be like that maybe don't hold up. Don't hold up. Well, that's why we get you in here. <laughs> <laughs> let you let you explain it, but uh, real crime, uh, true crime, yes, which you prefer. <laughs> uh, well, the true crime is interesting to me, much more interesting to me because it. Um, well, I shouldn't say much more. Let me clarify. <laughs> the true crime for me is the thing that allows me to look at what I was saying. If I'm telling a story, like I want to understand more broadly how we behave, and and I think that that allows for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Fiction. I don't read a lot of crime fiction. I do like watching films that are thrillers and fiction, you know, yeah. dramatization. So that would count as fictional crime. Yeah, uh, uh, but it's having a kind of a moment. Or uh, oh, maybe oh. maybe it always comes back and has a kind of a moment. I'm so sorry. I totally interrupted your question. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I interrupted it to ask you a second question, which I often do. <laughs> yes, I it, is, it is absolutely having a moment. So you have things like the Serial Podcast, which uh, everybody was uh, riveted by in the first uh, season. I, I don't know about the second one. Right. But uh, 
there's that out there. Then you have all these other programs and everything. I mean, at some point, there was Unsolved Mysteries was a big uh, program when right. I was watching television. But now there's a, there's probably a whole channel devoted to this kind of thing, right? Probably. Um, <laughs> the ones that interest me most, I just uh, I just interviewed Ezra Edelman, who directed the O.J. Simpson, which oh, yes. is about to come out. And uh, that, I think, is exceptionally everyone should watch that um i liked the staircase one a lot so there have been yeah but it's definitely having its moment yeah um and uh, there are these times though where great crimes grip the nation yes like the oj thing for for instance yes and i think to go back to your earlier question uh the low leopold case was a case like that where yeah. i think everyone was paying attention and chicago chicago the two fellas. exactly murdered wanted to see if they could commit the perfect crime so they didn't really have a specific victim in mind <laughs> right because it was about the crime so my grandfather walked to school every day with bobby franks who was the victim in that case oh my gosh so just i just remember that conversation in our house as, as something interesting as a, you know to um to learn that you have some kind of connection to this famous crime well yeah you go back and you realize it was even smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> You yeah, go, yeah, and you go and, back through the through the history, and so that's another nonfiction. The the thrill of it, that book about, um, which came out surprisingly recently in terms of when the crime happened. Yeah, uh, is an excellent book. I mean, I read even if you have never heard of the Loeb Leopold case, that that book was great. Yeah, I recently found out that I was a, a descendant of one the first uh, one of the first witches in Salem. Oh, really? Uh, so that's what I mean. You find out that you're all oh, it all comes back to the same group of people. <laughs> I mean, that was a you know, they sank, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know <laughs> which they sank method or they it floated. Was. Yeah, oh no, if they had sunk, they wouldn't have been a witch, no, but still dead. But still, so dead. everybody wins in that. <laughs> well, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, as my listeners know, and uh, that's where the scariest local news happens. So that was really my uh, exposure to crime growing because it's, I mean, it's all terrifying. But in Philadelphia, they seem exceptionally good at making very scary local news broadcasts, specifically about uh, crime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it's, but it's really, you don't need thrillers. You just uh, need the action news team. Anyway, that's just a little something about me. <laughs> we also have great things there, too, but skip the Betsy Ross house. Anyhow, as I think uh, maybe I mentioned to you before this, we focus on characters and comedy in this show. And uh, you've certainly been responsible for creating some comedy, writing some amazing characters. But beyond that, as I think you were uh, sort of uh, hinting at there, too, or, or explicitly saying, <laughs> you're interested in what makes the character of a person. And uh, does it seem fair if I say that a constant in your work would be the exploration of that impulse that moves a person from the path of the decent to the path of the unruly? Yes, I think that's fair. And also then also what's the impulse that moves them back? Because yeah, I think yes. that also is equally explored. In and that means a, a, a redemption coming back? Yeah, I mean, redemption is a word I... I'm going to avoid because I think it's a little loaded, but yeah. but but I think the complex that most people don't fall into one category. So when you read those interviews, a lot of those people are, you know, okay, I was a criminal and then I was a, an artist, a writer, and then I became, a, you know, there was even somebody who was a cop, a criminal, and an artist in the book, <laughs> and and I think that those um, gray areas are much more interesting to me because they are the ones that most of us given the circumstances could fall into or get out of yeah well then that's also kind of i don't know if this is true or not but it feels like an essentially american story where you have the kind of like you you go out with good intentions maybe something happens you make a bad choice you're in the wrong place at the wrong time you you uh, serve whatever you need to serve to uh, uh satisfy the the law and maybe you come out and there's great uh, love of those second acts, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it is an American story. And, and part of, you know, this theater project that I'm doing that's ongoing is looking at uh, crime by geography. So you're seeing the differences and similarities between crime in Key West and crime in the Pacific Northwest. But, uh, but I think that it's not even, I think even before the question of making a bad choice, it's like, the American story is what choices are offered to you. Sure, and, yes. And a lot of the people that are that I'm including, 
very different choices offered. So, right. So it's it's almost like well, if you have no good choices, <laughs> right. well, what you can't do you do? really even blame them for the original quote unquote bad choice, right? Yeah. Because you've set up a systemic problem. Well, even in your uh, animated uh, story about Martha, the last pas- passenger pigeon, uh, and as well as the documentary Mentor and the animated crime series, uh, it seems that there's a real interest in what the what are the forces that are at work uh, that make that town fall silent or make society hunt an animal to uh, oblivion. Exactly. It's that so- societal impulse. Yeah, and, uh, and how many people are involved in these, I think, I think there's a, desire to look at any of these cases or uh, I guess Martha's not a case but any of these situations and and um, try and pin it down to like blaming one person or one uh, you hear like bad apple or a bad situation or whatever right. when I think most of these things are much more broadly involve a lot of people including myself and never you know like that we have to kind of consider ourselves part of it. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, <laughs> we do. Um, but you look at, I'm, I'm just thinking back, though, uh, uh, through so many different uh, iterations of this idea uh, that you've put forward, and maybe where does that start for you? Where does that come out of? You said you studied sculpture? Yeah, I majored in sculpture. Um, and so you, want, you knew you wanted to have a... a look at things with visually. <laughs> I don't know how else you look yeah. at things, but the visual uh, <laughs> was a strong impulse for you. Yes, very for me, especially because I was pretty uh, nonverbal f- for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but also, I think, you know, sculpture, we were talking a little bit about this before. Uh, um, when I was in school, there wasn't an interdisciplinary program, which was really what I wanted to do. And so sculpture was the major you chose if you wanted to include all these different, you know, kind of installation yes. work, performance art, d- different things that were didn't have their own programs. And I think it's great that there are these programs, but I also think there's something to having uh, sculpture or a theater uh, be able to be large enough to contain all those things. Yeah, you know, so that you're actually enhancing whatever it might. You, you're enhancing the world of sculpture to say that it also includes a performative act. Or uh, as well as a bronze casting or whatever the traditional idea of sculpture might be. And then once you start to fracture that and you get new genres and you get uh, performance studies that are divorced from those larger ideas, to me, it does it a disservice. I'm glad that people can right. have that you area mean of that they don't have the basic... Right. Yeah, right. No, I feel lucky that I, we, I really studied all of the you know um, things that went into... Except for film... <laughs> I never went to film school or took a film <laughs> well, course. Well, you don't need that to be a filmmaker, do you? <laughs> well, I just realized, I'm, what am I saying? This isn't even true. I never studied film. Um, but I did, I went to an art high school program, and that, and so I really, you know, all of the basic art history and drawing and painting and photography and composition and color theory and stuff that a lot of students that I teach now never studied. That's amazing. Why were you nonverbal? Well, I wasn't, I mean, I... Uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask some kind of. I, I um, when I was very very small, I had a speech impediment, but I figured that out eventually. <laughs> um, and I wasn't like incapable of speaking. I just, I guess, didn't much until yeah. much later. And then I grew up in D.C., so uh, I got involved with the deaf community at Gallaudet College, and I studied sign language, and I worked with deaf kids, and I just felt more comfortable not using my voice (laughs) and I really when I moved to New York and I really it was not serving me well to not speak (laughs) (laughs) you gotta bring it up a little bit so yeah so I I I had to learn how to do that more and obviously I mean now I have friends who would love for me to shut up I'm sure Um, (laughs) oh now (laughs) but uh but yeah I think even now my impulse is less verbal yeah (laughs) <laughs> but but still, uh, you're able to tell great stories. Right, but I think storytelling has very little to do with s- whether you feel comfortable speaking. <laughs> right, I'm not, I mean, I, I mean, sure. Especially, yeah. I would say, like in my documentary work, uh, I've been really lucky to have support of projects where I didn't have 
have to, you know, there's always this push to put my voice in that, and I don't want to narrate those films, and I never have. Um, but but, see, but, but by putting those out there, you, well, you, it's my voice, yeah, in in air quotes, yes. <laughs> like it's like, and that's the argument I always make is this is my voice, but I don't want to hear myself narrating the film because, well, in general, I'm not a fan of narration, and although I think, <laughs> although I think it can work very beautifully in certain yeah. documentaries, so that's not a across the board statement but for me if I can tell the story without my voice in it I, I, without my spoken voice my like verbal voice in it I would prefer to do that yeah, let the artistic voice uh, move yeah. forward yeah. especially yeah and, and let other people t- say what they want to say I don't think the audience needs as much hand holding as some people think <laughs> <laughs> I agree I agree um, and with the um, with the, the strong visual um, base with which to work from you you have pursued that as well you are still a visual artist still put things in galleries and show things around around the world yes it must be tremendously exciting to do that yeah it is i feel very lucky i get to travel and meet other artists and be around creative places and i feel very lucky and you've shown over in venice which i love venice which i love too i hope it stays above (laughs) stays stays shore that thing up yeah I know. It's Maybe a, it's a, it's put a, a sandbag in. I don't know. Uh, yeah, some. I don't know how to solve it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but the um, the pigeon thing. If we so, you've worked in a lot of different uh, ways to have these stories be told. Whether it's animation or stop motion or music video or the comedy pieces, sketches. What drew you to that particular story with uh, Martha? Of course, there were many, many passenger pigeons. It was sure. The, the U.S. was lousy with them when people came over here. Yes, and uh, and that and credit for that for learning about Martha should go to uh, the theater company I'm an associate artist with, which is the Civilians. Yes, and they were doing uh, they did a great play in my opinion. Um, I didn't work on it, so <laughs> I can say <laughs> except, uh, the great immensity and and looked into a lot of um, animals that were being becoming extinct and various things about climate change and. Um, so Martha was one of the extinct animals that came up in conversation, and I was working with them to make some videos uh, for the civilians mm-hmm. for that overall project, but they were not part of the play. So so I made that with uh, Brian Young, and Michael Friedman wrote that song, and um, it fit my my doom and gloom outlook. <laughs> so <laughs> I enjoyed doing that. And it's also, also I like drawing and the, you know, so yeah. I like to draw a bunch of pigeons. And it's about love. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's a love it, that can never be. Which is, yeah, which, all, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. The lemurs, everybody's in unrequited love. <laughs> Did you get a chance to see, well, first of all, uh, I'm glad that was connected to Venice in my mind because that is pigeon central. Yes. They have no problem with pigeons over there. Um, but have you been over to see the pigeon performance at the Navy Yard? I haven't. I've had, I haven't it's a, had, it's a beautiful yeah. thing, even given that you've at least worked with one. <laughs> no, I'm a not drawing a of one, but still, I'm a, I'm a fan of the pigeons. It's a beautiful uh, Duke Riley and creative time put that thing on over there. Anyway, um, I wanted to ask you this. I know we're kind of jumping around, and I That's encourage fine. people to, to, to look into these things maybe in, in more depth. But I wanted to ask you this because of the current 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and changing gears slightly, I was watching the TED Talk that you gave about your own experience with cyberbullying mm-hmm. uh, in the wake of your movie Mentor. Maybe just explain what Mentor is, and uh, then I'll come back to the question I have about that. Mentor is a um, <clears throat> documentary I made about a uh, school in Mentor, Ohio. <laughs> school is called Mentor. The town is called uh, Mentor. Where is that? North? Or? It is s- s- nestled between Painesville and Chagrin, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> oh, I find the settlers that a, had a good time of it. Amazing, right? Um, and uh, there was a series of, of teen, teen suicides that were uh, related to bullying or allegedly related to bullying and two families... Um, brought a lawsuit against the school district, and the film follows those two families and their stories and um, what happened with them. It was it was a t- it was a tough film to make. It was you know not a f- fun place to be. No, and wh- 
Yeah. <laughs> I can I can imagine that. I know that even just watching the trailer of it, uh, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, just watching the trailer, I mean, I challenge anybody to not be moved to tears uh, through that to see what the the effect of really just uh, silence on the part of the community and uh, enabling whatever they were doing, but really the actions for these two, everybody's fragile, and, and especially in those years, um, to have that happen to those two young people and the anguish that's suffered uh, by the parents, it's heartbreaking on every level. Yeah, I mean, I found it quite a shocking experience. For I mean, there's the obvious reasons why it's shocking, but additionally, that kind of dismissal of these families, whether you whether you believe that the school district was at fault or not, it seemed like you would have a compassion for parents who lost a child, and I didn't see that. <laughs> and, yeah. that and that was very disturbing to me. Do you feel like that has uh, been corrected at all? No. no. I still get emails from people and mentor, and um, and also the Vitovic case has now been dismissed. So they did not get a settlement or anything. Wow. Um, and that was a strong case. Yeah. So that was very upsetting. Very, very. And you're, as you said, you keep getting these angry emails and death threats and this kind of thing yeah. through the through social media, however you get them. But uh, that seems to me a little uh, hint of what it must be like with this Trump uh, business. And this, I mean, he is a yes, bully. He is a bully. That's He's all. A that's bully all there is. And people are rallying around him, and it's terrifying. And you see people that write anything about him also get this wave of uh, anger and rage that, I, to me, I just haven't seen that. No, it's, um, I mean, this is an unprecedented uh, election cycle. <laughs> I, don't think, I mean, I don't think we've seen a candidate like him seal the nomination. Uh, no, not go this far. There have been others that have been, yeah, real, you know, been others, had elements but, <laughs> of this. But he just, you know, he's running for president and... Um, you think Upton Sinclair was getting death threats? I mean, I, I, th- I don't think the death threat is anything new. Yeah. I, d- I certainly, you know, uh, I do think that the the online kind of 24-hour cycle of people being able to um, make threats with no consequence, basically, no, they don't have to, they're not looking at you in face-to-face, they don't have to even say their name, it's, a, you know, the Twitter thing, I responded to all of those threats and... Nobody, you know, said we're still filming. We'd like to talk to you on camera. You can yeah. say whatever you want. Nobody responded. Sure. So, you know, that uh, what's the word mitigation? That kind of uh, the, the screen <laughs> affords people a certain um, level of bad behavior that I think was maybe. Of course, there was bad behavior before, but you had to <laughs> you had to figure out a different way to get yeah. it. You know, and if you wrote it down in your handwriting, well, then there you go. Yeah, that's, or if that's you, there. you know, challenge somebody to a duel, well, then you might be, you had a 50, 50 chance <laughs> that's in that right, one. Out. Well, with all the things that you've written about and, and put out there, do you believe there's evil in the world? Uh, I'm pretty careful to avoid that word. I did, it is, uh, well, oh, no, that, yeah, I don't think I've used that. I've used some, uh, um, because I think it's, yeah, again, I think it's, I mean, look, I have pretty, I don't have a high estimation of the human species. <laughs> so in that sense, I don't think that uh, people are inherently good. But evil is a word that's just, uh, I try and sidestep any of the words that seem to me like then you can dismiss the whole thing mm-hmm. by saying, well, this was a, I mean, of course, I mean, look, you know, people are invoking the Nazis right and left. And, and you know, uh, of course, I, there are things that I think pretty widely believed to be not good. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. even those things exist. Not they didn't pop out of a vacuum. And so I think those broader kind of questions of how they came to be are more interesting to me. I just was. Uh, I watched a documentary about uh, Vietnam, not an especially uh, well-made one or a compelling one, but uh, uh, sort of in that they had uh, the soldiers talking about their experience and that kind of thing. And uh, one of the fellows they had on, his job was to go inside the tunnels 
of uh, you just say Viet Cong. I don't know if that's still acceptable or not, but uh, the, the, the forces, the Vietnamese forces, had all the tunnels, of course, and his job was to go down with a flashlight and a forty-five caliber pistol, just him sit. Like they showed a little clip of the guy shirtless going into this tunnel. He had to check for booby traps, then they had to go into the what, who knew, who knows what they were going to find. He said usually it was just bugs and maybe an old map, but still, that's a little bit scary. That seems to me, in a sense, what you do. You go into a situation that may be loaded, dangerous, um, probably going to be okay, but you don't know, and you shine a light on some of these things that are that are going on. I like that. That's, yeah, try to. <laughs> sure. You'd be okay with that job. Well, no, <laughs> because if I'm going to go in a tunnel with a flashlight, I want it to be my tunnel. <laughs> well, okay, that came out wrong, too. I want it to be, uh, the, uh, you know. Yes. Yes, thank you. In okay. the ground <laughs> or, or something. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. But uh, for instance, you have a, uh, uh, this, uh, you have a new edition of your book, Mark of Cain, yes. coming out, which is coming out, Percival Press. Percival Press, yeah. That's Viggo Mortensen's deal? Yes, yes. That's it. You know that guy? Yeah, yeah. He's a good fella. He's wonderful. Yeah, he's great. And he seems this, like it. This publishing company is is really allowing um, authors to make the book they want to make and do what they want to do, which is a real gift to give to an author. That almost never happens uh, in yeah. any of the arts. I haven't seen it happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and uh, so in a sense, you inspired Eastern Promises. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble. Uh, I did know I did know um, Vigo before Eastern Promises, and so he he was. He shared my film with David, and they, you know, were lovely about that. But that film <laughs> was doing fine without me. <laughs> and uh, bo- they both contributed to your to your book. They did. They yeah. they're both in the crime book. Yeah. Um, and that that uh, book, though, Mark of Cain, and the documentary, is about uh, Russian uh, prison tattoos. Yes, yes. And their meanings, their symbolism. Um, that to me is what conjured the idea of going into a difficult situation. <laughs> Uh, with a flashlight, but I don't know what it, what was the experience like going in there. How do you even get access to that? Yeah, no, that's that's. A, I don't even know if we had a flashlight. We did get stuck in a cave with a lighter that stopped working. Okay. <laughs> with a fla- actually, the flashlight stopped working, and then we had a lighter that got us out of this cave. Oh, thank goodness somebody was smoking. Well, <laughs> that's a good point. I think everyone was smoking. <laughs> yes. All right. Right. Okay. But uh, yeah, no, I think um, how I got in, I don't know. It's always uh, it's always a uh, a mystery a little bit like luck and and a Russian crew which I think was hugely helpful because especially at the time post-Kosovo there was some anti-American sentiment and I think I would have not done as well with an American crew um and this is pre-Putin or Putin's already there this would have been well so there was a couple trips but the bulk of the filming inside of the prison would have been uh 99 2000 okay so um but yeah, and also we went really far outside of Moscow. I think within Moscow, the one prison we visited, they were a lot more savvy to what we were probably trying to do uh-huh. than than in Perm or Samara, where there is kind of, um, I think, interest in just having visitors. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, on the part of the wardens and stuff, like, you know. Uh, it was something to do. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but I took a lot of still photographs while I was there, and I never, and, yeah, this is an opportunity 15 years later to publish those and and have the DVD re-released with that, and um, so I talked to Vigo about it, and it just came out, and we're very proud of it. Yeah. Well, what, what, what inspired you to even do it in the first place? I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, a lot of my early artwork had to do with um, nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. And so that language of the tattoos, which I knew was dying out as Russia opened up, um, I wanted to document it. And I also thought it would hopefully tell a bigger story of Russia in a state of change, which was interesting to me. And so I, so I just was... I think that's, I think not, not having studied film was a blessing because I was a little bit naive and I... Thought sure, okay, I can do this. <laughs> Which now I'd be like, "There's no way I can do that." <laughs> <laughs> what What do you draw on though to have the uh, courage that it takes to do that? I think I don't think it was courage. I think it was a little bit of stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes that gets us through, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think the stupidity got me through. I 
I just felt like I'd been to Russia and it seemed a little bit like the Wild West in terms of the lawlessness that was happening while things were changing. And, um, well, not that it's gone away, but, you know, there was a lot of uh, opportunity. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I don't think it was courage at all. I think it was really just (laughs) me being kind of out to lunch. (laughs) And the evolution of the tattoos, see, if I remember correctly, they're moving from more of a nationalist, maybe uh, eagles and... uh, uh, representations of the leaders and that kind of thing to a more religious iconography? No, no, they had, the, they had the religious iconography also. That's always there. been there. Yeah, and it, and it also has its meanings that aren't religious, but has other meanings. Yeah. Um, it's more that the tattoos, the camp tattoos, which are a language, a hierarchy among the prisoners and also what statutes they're sitting under, what crimes they've committed, what, what prisons they've been to, what their... Um, tastes are what their interests are what you know all of this stuff is can be read on their bodies that practice is dying out so kids are getting tattoos the way any the way you or i might go and get a tattoo which would be whatever they want but this chinese thing, character yeah. on on the lower back that's stamp, right I get tramp it. stamp whatever they want yep. but they and a saxophone they, yeah <laughs> but they're <laughs> not so interested anymore in getting these um these camp tattoos, and so that, and that's what I was interested in. So the language is dying out. The language is dying out. Yeah. I went back ten years later, and already a lot of that was gone. Really? Yeah. So and it's just not. You won't. You just can't. I made. I'm very happy. That's another reason I was excited to re-release it. Is just that film exists, and that's all. It's not happening anymore. So. Yeah. And do you get uh, calls from people that have been inspired to get that kind of tattoo? You know, unfortunately, I I feel bad because, yeah, people come up to me and they want to show me these tattoos. And I don't want to be mean to someone who just permanently (laughs) marked their body. But but if you really pay attention to the film, the whole thing about these camp tattoos is that they have meaning and you can't. You know, if you got a tattoo that said you did something you didn't do, someone would cut it off you or beat, burn it off you. Or, you know, right. um, nice try. Yeah, so I've been approached by clothing companies and. Um, oh no. Yeah, and I always say no, and then when individuals <laughs> say, "Oh, look at this," I just think, "Oh, I don't know what to say to you because that's not good." <laughs> What's the matter with money? Money's the matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the people who are getting them, the, like younger people who aren't bad people <laughs> no no just think they're cool but for me it's not appropriate to get those absolutely not no that's no that's uh, uninformed yeah un- un- uninformed exactly but uh, you do keep uh, returning to these stories where uh, society is um, a central figure really it, it almost plays like another character within it even in the series of comedic shorts for mocha tv which are out there on youtube you've got jack black and fred armison and jibs as we talked about Good, good time working with those three. Oh my God, I could not ask for better people to work with. So nice, so brilliant. So I mean, really, we had, um, you know, it was a tight, tiny budget, tight schedule, a lot of moving parts, and those guys were the best. It seemed like everybody was enjoying themselves when you watch it. And what I, why I bring that up, the ones kind of doing battle, uh, as it were are things that are intangible, things that are out there, right? There's a strange odor, a buzzkill. The title character is <laughs> Ambiance Man. I mean, these are things that you're being affected by. Yeah, these people. are daily. I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about the uh, that true crime is having its moment, but I also think superheroes are having their moment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, not that they haven't so. before, but in terms of film and, you know, there's like a huge superhero moment. and. Well, they're the crime fighters, so if you have crime, you need to have... Right, and yay, I'm glad they're out there, but <laughs> I also, like, it's been a kind of running joke between me and a friend since uh, we were 18, this idea of ambiance, man, that, that uh, you know, there's daily things that would be nice to... One could use a superhero for as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> this room, for Bad instance. Ambience. No, I, I actually like this room. This room has exactly the kind of ambiance I like. <laughs> the right amount uh, <laughs> yeah he, he kind, of, kind of comes along and tries to just make it a little bit uh, better let's make it a little bit better and you know? he's thwarted often by uh, a, well, the a foul odor and uh, <laughs> unidentifiable odor yeah, yes and and 
a, a number of Buzzkill yeah, villain. Marcia Stephanie Blake played Miss Period. That's you know, enemy. I think we all know of good ambiance. Yes, it seems very New York too. <laughs> Do you think? Oh, this will be nice to sit outside. Nope. No. Wrong. You'll be wrong. <laughs> you're in the wrong place. See that? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, now uh, you're. <laughs> Where is ambiance, man? <laughs> you're not. Uh, you're not uh, blaming all of one person's actions on the environment or on society, but uh, you need to have a support system, don't you? It's nice. <laughs> it's nice, but I mean, isn't it uh, required? Yeah, I think it's required. I, I do, and I, I'm, you know, I have friends that I made at Art Center, um, that I've been friends with for thirty years. So I feel really lucky in that respect, and I have family and people who are um, endlessly patient with my uh, <laughs> little bit overly dramatic <laughs> day-to-day life. <laughs> yeah, does it seem that way? I feel I feel like I'm 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 always I always have some mess that other people don't seem to <laughs> Really you have one of these dark clouds that follows you around? I don't want to be that person so I'm going to say no. Good, chase it away. Burn some sage. <laughs> but I, yeah. I find the stuff is always happening near me. I'm no, happy near to have me. it not well, not yeah. be uh, Put on me. I mean, I can make it put on me very easily. I think that's. I think I'm. It's a self-criticism thing. I think I. I think it's. It's not maybe that there's more drama. It's that I like to complain about it. Or you're at least aware of it too, and that <laughs> informs your own narrative. Yeah. Because you were impacted by that person on the subway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been. I've been taking some more above-ground cars, and I really like it. It's nice, right? It's really nice. I mean. Yes. Not above subway. Not no, above. I, I mean, you know, black not, not cars. Hovercrafts. And taxi, yeah, not, not hovercrafts yet. Not those individual non-hovercraft things which burst no, into flames. No, I'm all for. I'm all for the. Yeah, someone driving. Yeah, me. do it. It's great. I don't even have to. Tips already included. Anyway, I'm not quite <laughs> there yet to do that full time, but I'd like to be. Right. Exactly. If I if I get there, that might be the first thing I spend my money on. <laughs> That's right. Dishwasher, first for me, and then uh, above ground car transport. Okay, I'm going to go car above dishwasher. Fair enough. (laughs) Each household is different. Now, uh, even when you're working on a project like Deadwood, which I know is old news, but listen, I love the story. I love that show. Uh, uh, I wish it could have gone forever. I also like your story within that. You were an extra or something on that show and then became a writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was friends with um, with Janie. who did the costumes on that show? Ah. Which, you know, one of the big stars of the show. Beautiful, yeah. And um, yeah, I just was in LA. I was teaching at um, Cal Arts. I didn't really know anybody. She was like, "Come up here. I'll put you in a horror outfit, and you can be an extra." <laughs> great, shine me up. <laughs> That's what I said. I, was, I thought that sounded like fun. She gave me a great outfit. Yeah, a lot so, of people. No matter what you're doing, if you're in the industry in LA, you're wearing a horror outfit. That's the joke that <laughs> was often made. <laughs> well, I like making it here. <laughs> Again, bring it back. Uh. I think I earned myself a nick. I think there was a day I was in the writer's room and I fell asleep. In the, there had been, it had been raining. There was kind of water coming into the trailer. And I believe I earned myself the nickname, Whore Who Sleeps in Puddle. <laughs> I just fell asleep there. <laughs> Sounds like a nice place to work. <laughs> Oh, it was it was actually. I had a lot of fun there. It but was then, fantastic. but you uh, what submitted a script or something, and then uh... well, I got yeah, I got lucky because uh, yeah, Janie had introduced me to David, and um, I had no background in writing for television, but I had it. I had written a script for myself that he read, and um, with those characters, no, no, just an unrelated script, um, a project that at the time I wanted to make a film of, but I never did make that film, but. Mm-hmm. But that's what he read, and um, I learned an enormous amount from paying attention to David writing. I, I watched the episode last night. Uh, I mean, I watched it when it aired, and I watched it again last night, and a lot of great facial hair uh, going on in that program, which I know you probably didn't write that part. But uh, <laughs> the, the um, Every other line, uh, more facial hair. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, cursing. 
Yes, but I think this <laughs> I think this was a, a a gift I had that recommended me for the job yeah. rather than the other <laughs> because I uh, you could ease right into that. I, I have a terrible. I curse a lot. It's bad. I should curse less. <laughs> well, it's also again this idea. The show takes um, the the show's name. The the location takes top billing, and uh, it's it's one where no one is fully righteous. When you talk about gray area, I think that's very. Uh, it's as murky as the mud on Al Swearingen's boot, right? It's yes. it's um, uh, if, if filthy, but you have a great ear for that language. And as I was thinking, I thought, well, maybe there's nobody I know that's more fluent in the language of uh, um, crime, in the language of those who have done wrong or have wrong uh, done upon them. Well, David's much more fluent. Than it. I okay, mean, but I don't know I him. Think the, I think that the <laughs> the voice in that in that show is David's voice for sure, and um, and uh, you know, it's ex- it's exciting to learn that and contribute to it. But that's his. That's a gift he has. But he also, but I mean, you have done it through many other iterations too, yes, not yes, just within yes. the Deadwood thing, which I agree he's fantastic at that, and his other shows too. But I mean, even with the the prison zoo project that you yes. had, this stop motion uh, thing, that was where it really sunk in for me. That I said, oh, she she has this ear for it that yes. um, is uh, specific and particular and really uh, completely realized. I do I, well. I, I mean, I meet a lot of criminals, so and and, right, and right, part of how right. I how I write dialogue in general, crime aside, is to listen to people talk. And so, uh, so I've accumulated a lot of like, oh, I like this turn of phrase, or I like the way they f- put that. You know, in the in the Mark of Cain, you hear a lot of um, people who are not asserting their innocence, but were phrasing their guilt in a way that I found awesome like that like well there was an argument at the end of the argument there was a corpse (laughs) or you know there's the woman who says um that she had to she describes her crime as having to relieve a citizen of their transitory personal property (laughs) which sounds like a favor you know you're like oh could you relieve me (laughs) you know but she just robbed she was in for robbery you know but so that kind of the description of an app that kind of language i like to pay attention to yeah that's, well, and uh, you've been successful at translating that, I think, into all these different forms. Thank you. And um, the, you talked about the animated version of Crime, um, which I, I think is wonderful to watch, kind of short bits that are taken from interviews in the... In the yes, those book. are all um, taken from... So those are the real people talking, and, and Sam Charanai, who's an animator in um, Canada that we collaborated on that. Uh, I just felt like... I had these longer interviews. I had the real voices. They most of them are either in in my book or in theater pieces that I have done. Um, but some of them had these kind of self-contained moments where it's really nice to hear their voice, and that making an animated piece reaches a whole different audience, both because of how you receive it on your computer, right. <laughs> and also because it's a um, short, contained, different kind of. Thing than asking someone to watch like an 80 minute documentary or come to a play or you know and the plays are they're city specific or they're becoming yes we did specific? one at, at um, Real Art Ways in Hartford and um, you work with Will up there yeah I love Will and he he found the support for that and he really um, he really supported that big time that's great Will Wilkins yeah Will Wilkins was great yep. I like his name too <laughs> um, no yeah he really found you know, backed that project. And I was a little bit nervous because none of the people I was interviewing said much that was nice about Hartford. <laughs> so, I thought, <laughs> so I thought, we're going to stage this here. <laughs> How's it going to be received? Well, but he people, knows Hartford. But so. people liked it yeah. and responded well to it. And a lot of um, people came out, people who had not been to Real Art Ways before, which is always exciting to me when you can get um, different people into different spaces. Absolutely. Um, and you're doing that some more. You're doing some other cities? Yeah, it's been ongoing. I mean, um, I would like to do a bigger staging of the one that has all the, like the Crime USA was the original idea. And then I started doing whole plays on individual cities, but I would love to have a state. The only time Crime USA has been staged was at Joe's Pub for a night. Um, but I'd like to actually do a proper, it was as opposed to a reading, do a um, proper staging. But that, so that one has all the different cities represented and then 
Um, but yeah, Hartford, Brooklyn, and then other countries, London. I've been collecting interviews about London. Um, so you just travel all over and collect these stories from... Well, I'm always traveling all over anyway, anyway. so <laughs> sometimes I have interviews that um, are left that didn't get used for something, and then if I could, and then I like it when they connect to, an, you know, they suggest another person, and so I kind of follow that trail. Yes, and these might be it. crime reporters or tattoo parlors or. Yeah, there <laughs> are places that I think are good initial go-to places. <laughs> In terms of observing a city, um, or what kind of crime is happening in a city, and pawn shops, and um, <laughs> yes, are good for that. <laughs> yeah, all the Boxing places I gyms, love to go. Tattoo parlors. Uh, always try and find the crime reporters. Uh, the police usually. There's somebody who'll talk to me. Who you know, really nice and helpful. Um, and then, pretty much any. Uh, you know, honestly, I. I'm, when we were in Key West, we we asked the waiter about his shirt because it had like this what looked like a mug shot, and they had. Um, and he said, "Oh yeah, you know, it's so small here. We'll look, you'll look up. There's a website where you could look up, like who who got arrested the night before, right? And it'll be your buddy. And then they take right. that picture, they go to Office Max and print it out and wear it just to kind of give their friend a hard time, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know." It would never happen in a city this big because you're not going to – maybe you could, but you wouldn't probably run into your friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, Florida's a special place, isn't it? It's, it's, it's something. Is there a city you think that has the most evocative crimes? I think uh, – no, because they're so diff- – well, so similar and so different at the same time. So, like, hanging out at the homicide – you know, department in New York, the New York City homicide detectives is is a different, um, completely different experience than being in Key West with, you know, a guy named Monkey Tom who <laughs> witnessed some of him murder on the, you know, but is one better than the other? No, this is great. I'm very lucky Mon- to Monkey do Monkey Tom's pop- ahead, though, in my book. Monkey Tom is, yeah. <laughs> he's, running, he's, he's running a little bit. He has his own song. He has his own song. I don't think we have a song yet for the (laughs) homicide department. I'm going to travel to New Orleans soon, so that's why I was wondering. New Orleans. Well, we so I made a whole yeah film with uh, David McMahon on a serial killer in in Louisiana. So we spent a lot of time. But as per usual, (laughs) we didn't get to see most. I mean, we loved New Orleans, but we were only there for a few days, and then you know. It's like, take us to wherever someone got killed. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? Maybe I need to rethink my subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or at least extend the trip a little bit. And no, we had, we, I mean, New Orleans a is a great, great city. And we did have a few Sazeracs. Oh, good, there. good. <laughs> well, um, you've worked, as we said, so many, so many different ways. And uh, it sounds like they're all just... Uh, uh, having some great success they're all moving forward and i hope that um, uh, you're feeling good about all these things and uh, it seems like you are i wish you all the best with it Um, now you've got a project coming up this uh, goodbye fat larry that's in the works yeah that's been an ongoing project that's um, that's about a filmmaker who himself was murdered in 1973 and then the surrounding kind of um, the subsequent crimes and and what happened and again to me a portrait of of a broader kind of time in America and also in cinematic history and also in terms of um the ripple effect that crime has yeah because he was active in the 70s or something yeah six, he was murdered in 73 okay. he had, but so as a photographer he had been a professional photographer and through the, through until then and any connection to the Philadelphia R&B group, Fat Larry? Not that, no. Oh, <laughs> well, good. They're spared that one, finally. <laughs> well, not that I know of. <laughs> Maybe I should look into that. <laughs> and um, as I said, I just appreciate your time. I appreciate your work that you're, that you're doing. Uh, the book Mark of Cain and the DVD with it, re-release. Yep. Is... Go to, to percivalpress.com. It's on there. Okay. We'll do that. I'm going to do it right now. Alex, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me, inviting me. Yeah, it's been great. Good luck with everything. Thanks.
I mean, sometimes you find someone whose work you admire, and then in conversation, you end up admiring them as a person even more. Please do check out Alex's films. The Mark of Cain book is extraordinary, and it's amazing how someone who professes to not being very verbal can find a way to provide a platform or multiple platforms as she has for others whose voices might otherwise not be heard, whether it's because they're being bullied or because of incarceration or some other circumstance. Alex Lambert doing exceptional work, and my thanks uh, uh, to Alex for coming by. It was wonderful. And my thanks to Harvest Works for hosting us. That's all for now. Till next time, I'll be finishing up work on my homemade ballpoint pen tattoo that I'm giving myself in the shape of an empty whiskey bottle playing a saxophone while wearing sunglasses. It will signal to the females that I'm broken inside. Now let's get back to that great music that we all enjoy. Dale Radio is written and performed by James Bewley, musical director Steve O'Reilly. Season theme composed and performed by Shockwave. Podcast icon for season eight designed by Jenny Fine. Listen to Dale on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. And follow the program on Twitter at Dale Radio or on Instagram at Dale Seaver. If you'd like Dale to come to your local VFW or Elks Lodge, simply drop us a line at Dale Radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You're the best. <laughs>